A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. Today's guest is Andrea Spencer, who makes beautiful works of art from glass. To quote Andrea, I find much of my inspiration in nature, investigating natural forms that are either transformed into symbolic objects or abstracted to create images. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrea. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, let's hop straight into the kind of work you do, Andrea. Can you describe the two divergent paths of your work, please? Yeah, um, yeah, I can. So um, for the past 16 years, I suppose, of my glassmaking practice, it's been made up of two fairly uh, opposing disciplines. Um, on the one hand, I've been making commissioned public artworks, which are site-specific projects, and they're mostly awarded through the open competition process. Um, very large scale, very colorful works made in response to a very specific brief and designed mm-hmm. to be integrated into the fabric of a building, um, in my case, mostly healthcare buildings. And, and they often take a team of people to complete the process. So I would make parts of the work in my studio and then uh, work with other fabricators and people to install, um, which mm-hmm. can involve cranes and all sorts. And then on the other hand, I make smaller autonomous works for gallery and exhibition. And these pieces are mostly concept-led installation-based works, which have a lot of small-scale detail and are usually limited in colour. Um, I make this work on my own in my studio, and I use a technique called flame working, which involves melting and shaping glass using an extremely hot bench torch. And it's a very solitary process, So, and I tend to work intuitively with this work and figure things out and what the next step is as I go along. And this work has a very delicate and ephemeral quality about it, and sometimes it's made to only exist for the duration of the show. Um, And with this, I'm interested in pushing the material to the extreme and utilising the properties which are unique to the material glass, such as transparency, fluidity and fragility. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, yeah, but the, there is a common thread that runs through both of those paths, um, and that's that I always refer to nature and the natural world for my inspiration and concepts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your studio is in a very idyllic place, Ballantoy, which yeah. some people probably know um, because of Game of Thrones. Can you describe this area? And do you also live there, Andrea? Yes, I do live. I do live. We're slightly... Inland of Ballantoy. So yeah, I do live there as well. And I'm very lucky in that I have the studio in the, in the back of the house. Um, so, um, yes, it is made, the area is made popular by the Game of Thrones, which is, is very good for the industry, uh, tourism industry. Um, but there's also a lot of amazing historical sites around the area. Um, about four years ago, my husband and I bought this property which is um, an old farmhouse and um, 
it was surrounded by open green fields and um, a lot of farming community. Um, but we have incredible access to the North Antrim coastline. So within just a couple of miles, I can be down on some of the um, amazing attractions of the Antrim coast. Um, we have about an acre of land, which we've been cultivating and growing and building on um, and are uh, uh, connected to the house also are a series of outbuildings in which we've built our studios. So it's an incredible location. Um, Sounds absolutely fantastic. So it must be, I hate to use the word, but it must be very inspirational. It is very inspiring. Um, I've always been very drawn to spending time in the natural world, um, especially as an immersive experience, being completely surrounded um, by nature or being in the water or standing on a precipice and or steeped in the changing light. We get an incredible quality of light here that I think is due to the nature of being so close to, to the coast. Um so yeah, and I suppose also my location, which is, you know, on the on the tip of the rugged Antrim coast, it uh, allows me to feed my habit of going out into nature and um studying and um collecting aspects which I bring back to the studio. I take a lot of walks on the coastline and observe my surroundings and then I bring those back, um, those observations back into the studio to translate them into the material. Okay. So the funny thing is you sound absolutely merged with that environment, but you weren't born there, Andrea. Where were you born and when? Yeah, I was born um I was born in Hertfordshire um in 1971. I was born in Hart- in a small village in Hertfordshire and that's where I I grew up. Um yeah, so in a small village connected by a series of other small villages. Okay. Now that's quite a different uh landscape. I don't know Hertfordshire intimately but I know roughly how the landscape would be that's quite a different landscape how did that environment affect you uh, as a girl growing up yeah growing up I spent a huge amount of time um surrounded by nature but a different type of nature to being here on the coast it was um at a very early age I was roaming freely in the woods and the fields and working with animals our village um and that area of Harpertshire would be particularly woodsy so um yeah, spent a lot of time walking dogs and working with horses and building camps and climbing up trees. Um, so yeah, as a, as a young adult, I guess I was busting to get away, but I've always been really grateful looking back that my formative years were spent in a rural environment. And I think it gave me a lot of independence and self-reliance and was a very freeing way to, to grow up. Definitely. Oh, it's interesting that you that you were working with horses. That that's quite a foundation, also, isn't it? It was amazing because I had a very uh, fortunate opportunity, fortunate for me, and also fortunate for my parents. Because um, there was in our village, it was literally one shop and one pub and one school, and that's really all there was to it. But in the village shop, there was a little advert for somebody to work with horses. Um, mm-hmm. So I. I worked for this woman who had six little ponies and they were show ponies, but they were all rounder ponies as well. So from about the age of 11, I was off down there all the time and riding the horses around the woods and taking care of these animals. And then in return um, for the work that I did, she then took me to um, the shows and to pony clubs and things like that, which would have cost my parents quite a bit of money. So it was nice because there was no money exchanged in it. It was just a sort of a, 
um, an exchange, I suppose, of, of, of work for experience. And it's just such a lucky, a lucky situation. That's wonderful. And do you, do you think, looking back, do you think that that was maybe quite therapeutic because horses are now used in therapy in some places? Yes, actually, I suppose, you know, I hadn't really connected that because um, I, I sort of work in that area a little bit myself now um, with people, not animals. But, yeah, definitely very therapeutic. I think forming a bond, you know, I mean, I was responsible for, um, at the time, six, maybe more, sometimes horses and ponies of different characters and two mm-hmm. of them very closely connected that I, yes, definitely therapeutic. And I think I can really picture, you know, just riding along all the bridle paths and in the woods and just that sort of freedom and independence, I think is, is very um, therapeutic as well. I imagine just thinking about it, because I, ha- I have a horse myself, that's why I have oh. to particular interest in that um i imagine as such a young person andrea getting to explore nature on horseback and and through the woods for sure that must have ingrained the amazing bond you have today yeah i i definitely think so i mean when i talked to my mum and dad about it, i mean and even you know my sister has children i don't have any children but my brother and my sister both have children and my mm-hmm. parents, we talk about the fact that, you know, I would be down um, even earlier than the age of 11, you know, probably at the age of nine, I would be down walking through the woods at like five, six in the morning, you know, and then going down and mucking out the horses before school. And, you know, it's just that sort of thing. Probably you wouldn't maybe allow that to happen now for your kids because it's a different world that we live in. But I was just really mm-hmm. so carefree and felt very safe. You know, I never, I think that's the thing. I think a feel like I had a very safe upbringing. I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it sounds absolutely gorgeous. Now, did you go off on any day trips uh, with your parents? Because you've mentioned you were going off to the shows. Were yeah. there any other special places that you went to? Yeah, I think as well, our family holidays when we were young kids, because I have an older sister and an older brother. So when we were all young, before my brother was 16 and stopped coming away with us, our family holidays would have been to the likes of the Peak District in England and mm-hmm. um, in caravanning holidays and walking, you know. So that's what we did for our Easter holidays. And um, so many family photos of like all huddled behind a stone wall in our waterproofs eating sandwiches. Um, um, but, but one of those, one, one um, we did return a few times back to um, a site that was in a, a farm and a farm and it was just a field in a farm. And I just remember being quite young, um, you know, maybe about six or seven and just following the farm around and helping. He would then let me help him feed the calves. And one time he woke us up in the middle of the night to go and see a calf being born. And I can't oh, help wow. but think that definitely kickstarted my fascination with the natural world and, and life cycles and, and nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. Now, <laughs> As a child, with all of those fabulous influences, do you remember that uh, a stage where you were making art of any particular type more so than the average child does? I think I, I do remember, you know, just incessantly drawing the whole, you know, a lot of drawing all the time, um, and I think even a bit earlier than that, I think I used to sort of spend a lot of time in my dad's shed, you know, hammering things to bludgeoning things together, which were always like little boxes. And then I would 
put them up trees, you know, and have them. I think they were kind of like secret, you know, it's sort of like a secrecy thing, you know, um, and stashing little things in them. And then also I, I remember thinking about one particular tree where I had some of these little boxes installed and just finding, you know, a baby bird that had, must have fallen out the nest and being too young really to realize, but I sort of had it and, um, you know, chopping up worms and trying to feed it to keep it alive and then just being so devastated when it died and not really realizing why. Um, oh. And I don't know if that's, if that's necessarily making art, but when I look back at it now and, and look at the way sometimes I work of, of collecting things and grouping things together and just um, creating these kind of assemblages, I think maybe that relates to it somehow. I, I mean, as soon as you were talking about that, I see that reflected in your work from what I've seen in my research uh, before today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. I do. I do still have a massive fascination with birds. And um, yeah, I yeah. For a long time, I was fascinated a lot by dead birds, just in the sheer fact that you could get so close to these creatures and have a look at them, you know, Whereas when they're alive, they're not so easy to, to see. Um, but living here where we do now, we have our outbuildings. And because before we bought the property, it had been more or less abandoned for quite a long time. And it had really had been overtaken by swallows, which is an absolute delight. Every year we wait for them to come back. And we've some out there now that are um, about to fledge a second set this year, which is surprising because it seems late. But it's just a delight to see, you know, to hear them and see their little beaks poking up and, and now it's like I'm more interested in keeping them alive and letting them go on their way because we've got a couple of cats and one of them's very active so on nature <laughs> control so um, it's it's quite interesting how things have changed I'm more interested in the living variety now than than I am with the dead variety and that's they're meant to be lucky as well the fact that they return to your place I love that idea. And I love the idea that they apparently do uh, return to the same nest in which they were born. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Last year was devastating. Yeah. We, well, one year we had five families, which was just amazing. And I think that was before we actually had the, the work on the house completed. And then last year we only had one family. And actually we headed off for a period of time just as they were starting to nest. And then when we came back, we found that one of them had died and, and then the five eggs in the nest were unhatched. And it was just devastating because we, you know, to think that they'd come all this way and they'd not sort of completed their, their journey really. But yeah. Yeah, no, I understand, <laughs> I understand from, you know, we're also in the country, so we have a lot, a lot of the same experiences, I think. Yes. Um, now, a big, huge contrast in your life, Andrea, was when you went to study in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So a massive contrast mm. uh, to your country life beforehand. What kind of an impact did the city and your time studying have on you? I think I just feel when I look back at that now, I mean, I absolutely loved Edinburgh. And I chose to go to Edinburgh for very shallow reasons because um, I had actually been accepted into college in uh, Swansea and also um, in in London, in the uh, Chelsea. Um, mm -hmm. But I chose Edinburgh because at the time I just really wanted to get quite far away, not in an awful sinister way, but I just think I was ready for adventure. And, um, and also, um, you know, I just, I just loved the journey up there and the, and the city, as you say, such a contrast from a rural village. Um, but I was only really 18. I was only there for 18, 
at 19, maybe 19 to 22. Um, and I think just the, the vibrancy of student life, um, was, was what I really enjoyed. I did take a few day trips or overnight trips out to some of the Scottish islands. Um, but I didn't do a huge amount of, uh, immersing myself in nature in that period. Um, but, um, oh, I've lost my thread there. Oh, I know what I was going to say that, um, what I realized now looking back was my choice of going to Edinburgh as an art college for glass. It was a very broad program. Um, so it introduced mm-hmm. you to all aspects of glass making. But when I went there, I was really only interested in stained glass. I didn't, I wasn't really aware of all the other aspects such as glass blowing and kiln forming. And the other two colleges that I had applied to would have been much more stained glass focused. So now, um, looking back, you know, I think again, it was another great opportunity, which opened up a whole range of experiences of glass to me that I, um, might not have discovered otherwise, or it might have taken me longer to have discovered if I'd gone to the other colleges. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was obviously a great choice. Now, in 1993, Andrea, you graduated with a degree in architectural glass, yeah. and then a week later, you moved to Belfast. Now, that's a decision, given that the troubles were still an issue at that time, that might have been considered a bit unusual by some people. Why yeah. did you move to Belfast at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think that what had happened is in the year before I finished at Edinburgh, um, I had come over to Dublin actually for a summer and I had worked there. I had, um, some friends that, um, can connect, that had a connection back to England, but they, their family were based in Dublin and, and they offered me summer work job and I went to Dublin and I just absolutely fell in love with the place. I mean, having already moved mm-hmm. to Scotland, I had discovered a new spirit of person in Scotland compared to in England. Um, and then going mm-hmm. to, to Dublin, I was just, I just was blown away by the spirit of the people there. So I think that was my initial, um, attraction was after I finished in Edinburgh, I didn't really want to return to England. And I, uh, thought, you know, I'll, you know, just go over to Ireland. Really. I had, um, a connection in Belfast, which is how I ended up in Belfast. Um, so that was really the reason why I moved there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And where, whereabouts in Dublin were you? I'm just curious because that's where I'm from. Yeah, I lived in Dublin three times in my <laughs> since I uh-huh. since I left Edinburgh. <laughs> but um, the first time, the first summer I was there, I was living on Waterloo Road, which was just oh wow, oh, excellent thing. Yeah, very great location. And I was working in um, a nightclub called the Night Train. Um, it was in a pub that was called Howl at the Moon down on. Is it yes, a- of course. Oh, yeah. I knew the name. I was like, yeah. I know the name. Yeah. yeah it's probably <laughs> now, but what an amazing experience and such fun, you know. Definitely. Um, and then, yeah. and then when I moved over to Belfast after Edinburgh, I, um, was in Belfast for a few months and then I tried again to live in Dublin, but it was just very different. There wasn't, I wasn't getting the same kind of work and I didn't quite mm-hmm. get a toehold. So I, pinged back to to Belfast again and then shortly Mm -hmm. after that maybe about nine months later I moved down again to Dublin and I lived in um Terre Neue and Mm -hmm. I I worked for the Irish pub company for nine months um okay yeah so um and then I finally moved back to Belfast and just decided I'm always moving back to Belfast I feel (laughs) much more comfortable here and I think this is where I'm going to stay and then that, that's where I am now. Yeah. Well, not Belfast now, but oh. I'm settled. 
No, but you were you were there for a good while. Now, Belfast, uh, in this in this first series of creative creative places and face, faces, we've interviewed a couple of people from Belfast, mm-hmm. um, and we've had interesting sort of feedback, you know, regarding it as an environment. Did you find it inspirational in some ways or not? I did. Do you know what I think really shocked me was the people the warmth and the generosity of spirit of people and how they embraced me. Um, I was, mm-hmm. if I'm honest with you, I was, I was nervous about the idea of moving over to, to Belfast because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about the troubles. And I just actually assumed that being English, I wouldn't be very welcome here. Um, but actually it was really was the opposite and people were incredibly friendly. And at that time, I guess, you know, I'm talking about sort of, 93, 94, when I first moved over, um, there wasn't really very much happening here in the way of glass. Um, so I wasn't working in glass at all. And I started out actually just doing pavement drawing. So I would just sort of set up on the streets in Belfast and just start, you know, um, drawing on canvas. And the people that came by were just so pleased and welcoming and just kind of a bit astounded you know that having you know having moved over here you know rather than people moving away and they were very welcoming so I think that was very inspirational to me and the spirit of the people um and and the culture and I also at that time I met somebody who took me out and about um really just sort of that idea of just taking off into the country and camping out in nature and lighting fires to cook on and swimming in the sea um, and then exploring the diversity of the coastlines of Ireland, but then also the culture that goes with it in the pubs and the, you know, traditional uh, music and things like that. And I think that's really what I was so passionate about in the early stages of living here um, that kept me here. I just really loved the whole culture of it of Northern Ireland. That's that's understandable, I think, yeah. So even though of course at the beginning uh it sounded amazing what you were doing, but it wasn't what you planned, you know, yeah. when you're in university. And as as the peace process uh started to come about, that obviously brought some significant changes in the infrastructure. Yeah. And in two thousand three you were awarded your first public art commission. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that, Andrea? Yeah, I think two thousand Three for me was a time when kind of all the planets aligned all at once. I mean, I'd been living in Belfast for 10 years by then. And as we talked about, I wasn't, hadn't been working in glass at all. And I was really wanting to find a way to get back into it. I'd been working very commercially and had got quite disheartened with that. Um, and just to, it's, it's a long story, but I'll try and keep it short. And I, at that time, then I had an opportunity to, I got a post to work with an arts and health organization. And um, that set me up in um, Belfast City Hospital um, as a, it was a two-day post. And along with that also gave me access to a a studio. So um, for the first time in all those years, I was able to actually have somewhere where I I could work. And I was working in a very different way um, and connected to a community of artists. Um, And then through that post, I got the opportunity to do a public artwork for that hospital. Um, and I applied then for an Arts Council award to support that and fund it. Um, so that was another thing connecting to the Arts Council. And then the third thing that happened was um, through 
getting the opportunity to create that commission, I was able to apply for um, a glassmaking residency, which was over in Scotland. And um, so that was um, the first opportunity I had to go and um, get my hands on the facilities that are required to make glass because it's quite an intensive resource uh, material to work in. So those three things combined really sort of came together um, as a starting point um, for me. And that first commission then in, installed, it, it was eventually about 2005 by the time it installed, but it gave me then um, uh, an entrance into that world of public art commissions. Okay, okay. So then from around that time, 2004, 2005, until 2018, you were working on one or even more commissions yeah. per year. Yeah. Um, of course, it's probably a very difficult choice, but is there one of those that you feel is most representative of you and your relationship with the life and environment of Northern Ireland? Well, I suppose um, the work that I do for the Public Art Commissions is always inspired by nature. Um, it's not necessarily about the place of Northern Ireland so much. Um, and that work is also, I always see it as a kind of a meeting between, um, a, it's almost a bridge really between my own autonomous work and um, a work um, for a specific environment. Um, so, um, but I suppose if I think about it that way, one commission that I do think about a lot is the one that I did, I actually did it as a collaboration with my um, husband, Scott, and it was for the Cancer Centre mm -hmm. of Northern Ireland, which is um, in Belfast, is on the Belfast City Hospital site. And um, the what we made was um, a group of, was great, based on a group of starlings. So I suppose one of the things that you see in Belfast, especially as uh, the, the seasons turn from uh, autumn to winter, is the starlings that come and flock to the bridges. So the concept for that, um, sculpture was that the idea of this ca the cancer center so people from all over the um country of northern ireland would be coming up to belfast for the um for treatment there and one thing that would be familiar mm -hmm. to them and would maybe connect them were the flock the flock the flocks of starlings so i think that's one that i associate very much with place and also um quite representative of some of the the qualities that i love about glass using hand blown glass um and just the, the colors in it mhm mm okay that sounds very beautiful and, and I think very uh, poignant in that particular setting, obviously, as you've described it. You made an absolutely superb video that you sent to me quite recently. We're linking that below the transcript here um, for the podcast. It made me wonder how important being close to the coast is for your creativity and also a bit of, I find myself a little bit intrigued about your special relationship with seaweed. Yeah, well, um it is important, I think, for me to be close to the coast. Even after, um, before I moved to the coast, I came a little bit halfway and moved to Randallstown and lived there for a while. And even when I was living there, I would drive up to the coast as often as I could um, to spend time. Mm -hmm. um, but now um, being, you know, so close to it, it's uh, definitely, um, I, I'm very lucky. I, I spend a lot of time now, I monitor the tides quite a bit, the levels of the tides, and I'm interested in sort of returning to one particular place and seeing 
how it is in the different at different times and different tides and different uh, winds, just the conditions. And so some uh, one of the places in particular I go to um, at low tide as it goes out, just it exposes all of the seaweed. And it's just fascinating to look at all the different types and the fact that, you know, it's exposed for this period of time and it's all it's still alive and growing. And when the water comes back in again, it, it goes into this completely different state of fluidity flowing underneath the water. Mm -hmm. um, the seaweed element of it, um, originally, I guess, um, I work that I'm probably known for, the best. my glass work that I'm known for the best is a series of work that I did that's based on the mermaid's purse. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know much about that, but it, it kind of looks like seaweed and you find it washed up on the beaches. But what it actually is, is the egg sac um, of a fish from the shark family. So the the cat shark, or it's also known as the dogfish, which is a bit confusing. But uh, so, yeah, that's <laughs> something that's sort of um, I've worked with for a long time. And I um, uh, and. That has led me then into sort of looking at seaweed, seaweed as well, because those egg sacs, um, once the fish has, um, they, the fish sort of expels it from its body and then it's fertilized outside of the fish. And then the egg sac, um, in, embeds itself on the seafloor, but it, um, entwines with the seaweed, which camouflages it and pre protects it while the fish is growing inside of that sack. Um, and then after about, so the sac provides everything that the little the little fish needs to survive. The yolks inside it feeds off of that, and then it generates its own oxygen within the egg sac by um, beating its tail in each of the corners of the egg sac to um, to engage mm -hmm. an exchange of oxygen from the outside environment to the inside environment. And then after the fish has um, come out of that, it's washed up on the beach and discarded. So that's a there's a lot of themes in there that I've been working with for a long time of sort of purpose and uh, mobility and mortality. Um, so, and that has just, and survival, I suppose. And survival, no? absolutely, survival? yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of where the fascination started with the um, looking at the structure, at these amazing complex structures in nature that are designed, um, you know, designed so cleverly to to survive, you know, in, in the natural world. Um, and I look then a lot at, at, at those structures that are, we also find a lot of those similar structures in nature we find inside our own bodies. So that's something that I look at a lot as well, the relationship between the structures in nature and the structures in our own bodies. Interesting, very interesting. So I was told uh, in the very early days of owning my first horse that you choose a horse that, that uh, mirrors you. So you're talking about mirroring in a sense, aren't mm -hmm. you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mirroring. Yeah, I definitely see um, a connection with the with the mermaid's purses. I, I definitely see a connection to the human form there. Even something about their appearance as well makes me um, sort of relate it. And I sort of think I mean, I come back to them time. I mean, I worked with them very intensely for a period of four or five years. And then I, I sort of moved away from them a bit and I come back from them time and time again. And I, I sort of think of it a little bit like life drawing. When you're at art college, you do life drawing study of the human figure and you never seem to mm -hmm. get tired of it, trying to capture that essence, you know, of, of life and 
truth of form and and expression. And I sort of feel like there's something in that that I do with the mermaids' purses um, and um, connecting them to elements of nature to just sort of try and express different ideas about human condition. This episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast is sponsored by Property Insurance Center. Property Insurance Center's sponsorship helps to support the local economy by promoting not only local writers, artists, and craftspeople, but also entities involved in travel, tourism, and hospitality. This first series of the Creative Places and Faces podcast has an exciting lineup of guests, including Jan Carson, Henry McDonald, Ann Smith, Malachi O'Doherty, Andrea Spencer, Helen Sharkey, Emma Thorpe, and many others. Today's sponsor, Property Insurance Center, specializes in commercial and residential property insurance and all types of business insurance. Originally established in 1976, this family insurance brokerage has served thousands of businesses and families just like you over the decades. To discover more or become a sponsor, click on the sponsorship link below this podcast. And now back to you, Jackie. From your autonomous sculptures, Andrea, is there one in particular that reflects these type of bonds that you've discussed? I think, yeah, I, I made a piece, um, I think it was in about 2013, and I called it Collection. And if you do go to my website, I think it's actually on the opening page of it. And it was sort of an accumulation of my studying of the form of the mermaid's purse and learning these different techniques to put um, – texture and color into the into the surface of the glass and also then um, embedding things um, and encapsulating things within the contents of the mermaid's purses and I sort of brought those all together in one piece and um, I think mm -hmm. that for me would I would say is the piece that I uh, feel reflects sort of a special bond to that to that form and my interests um, in glass. Okay, fantastic. Now we're in September of 2020 because, of course, people could listen to this podcast at any stage in the future. Yeah. And we've been through uh, probably the weirdest year for most people's lives. I've been through the experience of lockdown. How has that been for you as a creative person there in the north of Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting because it's very conflicting. I mean, initially when when lockdown started in March, was it March? I was... March the 19th, I was uh, sort of waiting to see if, if if Scott, who was out in the States at the time, was going to make it back before lockdown happened. So I managed to scoop him up wow. and we got back here. And then more or less, I don't know, maybe four or five days later, lock, we were all in lockdown. And for for us, I think it is not hugely different because we are very self-sufficient. We're very rural Um and remote and our studio, very fortunate to have our studios, you know, in, in the back of our, our house. Um, so, um, from that way, it, it wasn't different. And just the slowing of the pace of life and, um, the access to nature, you know, was actually was, it felt like a blessing. So from that point of view, that was good, but it was a strange mix of emotions to have this slowing down of a pace of life at the same time working in the studio and listening to the news of how the virus was impacting people around the world. And then in early April, um, I learned that a, a friend of mine, it was actually the um, friend that I was talking about earlier about when I 
first moved over to Dublin that they set me up with work. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard then that her father was um, in hospital dying of COVID and she was is now living in England. And so that really struck with me, you know, that she was unable to to get over back over to Dublin to see him. And at that time, you know, the yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, really difficult. I could relate to it a lot, having moved away from home myself and what it's like, what that feels like. Um and then at that time all the trees were sort of blossoming. Um and this really struck me, the fleeting nature of the blossom that would fall from the trees and that people weren't even going to be able to get to see it because we were all, you know, to be locked down in our homes, not really allowed to to go out and experience it. And then I was in my studio working with a process that relied on oxygen to make my work. It just seemed um, a lot of connections there that I found. I got very mm-hmm. interested in the sort of symbolism of the blossom as something that relates to that experience, my friend's experience of um, and, and the COVID pandemic. Okay. Obviously, yeah. Uh, you 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 made a made a particular piece of art, didn't you? Yeah. Coming yes. out of that, I did. I did. That's right. Because what? Well, I I have a sort of statement about that piece um, that relates. Would you like yeah, to read I that? Because it probably explains it quite well. So I had made this piece that went into um, the show, the Craft NI show that they had. Um, Put on that was called Unlocked, and it was artists responding to the mm-hmm. um, the lockdown period. So um, my statement um, uh, goes like this: um, When lockdown was first introduced in Northern Ireland at the end of March, it saw a raft of restrictions on everyday life, and for my practice, this meant an immediate cessation to the supply of compressed bottled oxygen. The fuel source essential to operating the bench torch that I used to create my flamework glass pieces. And it seemed an uncanny metaphor for what was happening around the world. People with severe symptoms of coronavirus, unable to breathe, literally gasping for breath. The news of which I absorbed through the radio in my studio as a number of cases increases and the last of my bottled oxygen ran out. A few days before lockdown was enforced, I was very fortunate to be able to borrow equipment from the Flowerfield Arts Centre, and I was lent an oxygen concentrator, which re, uh, was reconditioned from its previous use in the medical field and is specially modified to run my glass-making bench torch. And so the loan of this oxygen concentrator substituted my dependence on purchasing the compressed bottled oxygen and allowed me to sustain a level of practice throughout, throughout the height of the lockdown period. So powered then by the oxygen concentrator, which was plugged in in the corner of my studio that sort of um, makes a sound almost like, I suppose, somebody who's on a ventilator uh, breathing away in the corner. I was able to create the piece then that was inspired by my immediate environment um, on the Antrim coast. So I was taking walks daily and collecting pieces of nature that were happening at that time. Um, the sea pinks were all coming out and the um, sea campion. And so I brought those back to the studio and cr- created this circular piece that had uh, those pieces of nature encapsulated within it. Okay. It's amazing uh, and very, very powerful, obviously, what you've just read out, Andrea. You chose... The circular shape on purpose, you felt a connection 
through what was happening with the oxygen to people around the world or am I, yeah, am I on the right you are. direction? I mean, I, it, it wasn't the first time I had made a piece like that. I call those pieces are almost like garlands. Um, and I had just sort of recently started to make those. Um, but I think that particular one, um, there was a couple of ideas. The circular motif really seemed to fit in well because I was returning to the same place every day. I discovered this sort of recently, fairly recently discovered this walk that takes me down to um, Larry Bay, from Ballantoy Harbour down to Larry Bain, um, which is my new favourite place mm-hmm. in the world. And um, so returning there every day, observing that environment, watching the nature as it changes over, over a period of time. But it also, I think I was really thinking about my whole um, journey of moving over here from England to, to Ireland, or Northern Ireland, and that was sort of instigated by this, um, by my friend who had moved from um, Dublin to my small village um, and then moving over here and their family <laughs> taking me in. And it just, you know, it, that same then her father who was so ill and, it just seemed like the whole thing and the, the generosity of being uh, lent the oxygen concentrator. It just, this whole thing seemed to return, mm-hmm. you know, things were feeding back into um, this sort of circular relationship, I think. I think that's how it all mm-hmm. came together okay. for me. Okay. Now, I found it interesting, Andrea, that you chose today for our interview because this day next week, you're going to be part of a show opening in Texas called Ground Zero 360. And that's part of a larger project, which is in response to 9-11. Naturally enough, next year, it's going to be 20, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Can you tell us a bit about the, the show and your involvement, yeah, actually, Andrea? Yeah, it's not, actually, it's not this time next week. It's this time next year. Um, so, yeah, I think, no, oh. sorry, I might, I might not have communicated <laughs> I, my information very well to you there. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, in. In 2011, an artist, Nicola McLean, she created an exhibition called Ground Zero 360. And it was to honor victims and their families of the terror attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, and so it's a mostly, it's been touring then since then. So that's what nearly, that's nine years or so. It's been, it's, it's been, um, it was shown in the, um, Collins Barracks in, in Dublin. And um, it's been shown in other venues in the States. And in 2021, there'll be a new part to the exhibition that will celebrate the or commemorate the 20-year anniversary of the um, Mm 9-11 terror attacks. And 25 artists have been invited to participate, and I'm one of those artists. So um, next year in 2021, there'll be an official launch at either the George – at the – George H.W. Bush Library in Texas. Um, so, uh-huh. yes, so I've been asked to cr- create a piece that's sort of in response to um, my memories of the um, 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I think something, I haven't made the piece yet, but um, I, I'm going to get started on it pretty soon because it, it's to be ready for December. But um, one of the things I think I'm thinking about in particular is actually just the um, – parallels that I was seeing um, with the with the COVID pandemic and the blossom and thinking about those images of um, after the terrorist attacks in New York of all the dust settling on the city 
and as something mm-hmm. that I'm not sure what way I'm going to mm-hmm. go with it yet, but I'm thinking something about those um, little uh, flower blossoms that I was creating back in April and somehow maybe making a piece that relates that to the, the dust. And um, in particular, there was one lady that was known as the dust lady, and there's an amazing image of her just after she was brought out of the buildings covered in dust. So they're the sort of things I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, but and that and so then that will uh, be ready for the show next year. Okay, and I'm I've no doubt that when you start to work on that, it's yes, going to come to, come together very beautifully. So. You really beautifully. have to trust in that creative process. It's always a little bit daunting if you you know you you don't I don't necessarily always know exactly what it is that I'm going to make, and there might be a rough idea, and sometimes it takes quite a bit of thrashing out, especially to finish something. Um, but okay. so just going back to the beautiful environment of Ballantoy where you are, if a friend was coming to visit from abroad, where would be the favorite place to, to put that friend to stay? My favorite place of all time at the moment is, is Larry Bain. I've been obsessed with it now for well over a year. Um, it's very close to me. It's literally about, uh, two miles away and, um, Larry Bain, um, at one time was a quarry. Um, and I could spend all day there. Um, I go on, I go on further than the quarry down to the coastline. And that's where I um, took a lot of that footage from the film that you mentioned. Um, it's very rocky and not many people go down there. So I don't really want to tell too many people about it, but, uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's um, just an amazing, amazing place. It's the, the power of the place. Um, I've been just this week, actually it's September, but, um, I've been um, taking taken some swims down there, and it's just in, incredible when you're in the water and you're looking back at this very rocky coastline. It's just it could be at any period of time. You know, there's there's very little sort of man-made influences when you're down there. So that's my favorite place. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about uh, for accommodation? Would you have somewhere that – Apart from your own yeah. house, obviously, uh, somewhere that you might want to recommend. You know, I just found out about this place um, called the Oat Box, um, and I, I haven't stayed in it. It's very close to me. Um, I'd like to stay in it, but um, I found out about it on Instagram, and it's a 1968 Bedford TK horse lorry that's been lovingly converted into guest accommodation for two adults. So it's through Airbnb. Um and it's funny because okay. I suddenly realized I kept looking at this thinking, how gorgeous is that? But it reminded me exactly of the horse box lorry that I used to be driven around in when I was uh, working with the ponies. It's a very old um, wooden one with the, with the cab. And um, they've set it on uh, private fa- farmland on the Antrim coast. So it's very close then to all of the main coastline attractions. And Apparently, it's on a very elevated site, so you get amazing views. Um, and the interior then, to looking at the photos on Instagram, has just been really well done, really nicely done, um, very cozy inside with a um, a wood-fired uh, arga uh, or stove that I think you can cook on and that heats mm-hmm. it. And it's just such an amazing, quirky, interesting place. Um, I think that would definitely be um, a place to stay. 
that sounds absolutely amazing and and you know very much in tune with the with the surroundings yeah, by the sound absolutely of it, no? i mean i i'm seeing that you know i mean i've been coming up to this coastline ever since i moved here which is over 20 years but i've only lived here for 5 years but in that period i'm seeing so many really interesting places developing um to stay and to eat that i just uh, really um just making it an amazing place to visit. Okay, so any favourites of those so far that you would bring your guests to? Do you mean sites or, uh, yeah, sites to visit? Um, sites to visit and then and then okay. where would you go for a bite to eat yeah, or a well, drink well, also sites afterwards? To visit. I mean, you can't, you can't really beat the Giants Causeway. It is amazing. Um, I mean, it's obviously very popular and it's very busy. So it's, it's, you know, it's a bit of a double edge because you can't really get it splendidly to yourself. Although one year, it was probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I did actually manage to go there, um, at midnight for full moon, which was amazing <laughs> because it is actually the Giants Causeway is actually part of a coastal path. So, um, you know, you can access mm -hmm. it, um, outside you know not outside of visit visitor center hours but um that's the sort of you know obviously the most well-known place um but my other favorite place is um murloc bay which is uh just as you're leaving mm -hmm. bally castle on the um coastal route um to to um towards cushion door um murloc bay is just along there um it's an incredible, incredible site. It's really rich in history. Um, I'm not very good on my history, but I have taken a guided walk, uh, there. I was, went on a guided walk one time and, um, the guide there explained about all the history of the, um, the clans that lived on that land and, um, just the connected to Rathlin Island. So um, there's definitely a very powerful energy about the place as well, I think. Um, so that's a, a favorite mm -hmm. place of mine as well. Um, okay. And what about restaurants, so, bars, somewhere to just relax yeah, after I've a good a day out? a few places that I, I like. For, for restaurants, I think if I was sort of going out for a treat, um, I, I really like Harris Shack. It's a, a great place. It's on the strand at Port Stewart. So as you go down onto the strand, it's, um, it's just there. So, um, it's, you know, it's like being on a beach hut, but it's not, it's, you know, it's quite, it's not very formal, terribly formal, but it's, you know, it's a, it's good, good quality food. So it's a great place. Um, mm -hmm. but then something that's a bit more quirky and sort of what I was, talking about earlier just this idea of living in this really rural place but having these amazing um quality experiences just around the corner from us is Brockgammon goat farm which is a family run business and they raise um goats and um they have uh got a small sort of cafe that's open it's i think it's open now on a You'd need to double check, but I think it's open on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, and it's re really nicely mm -hmm. done, really nicely done inside. And, um, it's just so, uh, such a novelty to have something like that on your doorstep. I often take people when they come to visit me, I take them around there and you can get, um, a Billy burger and 
they do amazing cakes as well and they also do a lot of um they do tours of their of their farmlands and they also do experiences such as foraging for you know food foods so i think it's it's a great place um yeah that sounds amazing that sounds fantastic Good what about bar. a good bar to listen to a bit of maybe you mentioned earlier on the the music you 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 love yeah, the music I and mean, the culture I, I there think- since we've moved here, we've become <laughs> we've become very reclusive. We don't venture out as much. But if I do go into Ballycastle, um, I do. There's a there's a bar that's known as Wee Tom's. Uh, it's also called called the House of O'Donnell. Um, it's great for atmosphere and traditional music. It's the pl- kind of place that doesn't open until later, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't. It's very. It doesn't do food. It just really you're there for for the, the you know the trap music. It's a great place. And then if it's um, a bit of glamour, which occasionally I like a little bit of glamour, um, I like the Salt House <laughs> Hotel Bar, which is. Um, fairly recently opened it's a it's a it's a it's a hotel and a spa as well and a restaurant i've only really been to the bar part of it but they have amazing gin cocktails and you sit at this bar and you look out of this giant picture window which has a view that goes um right down the glen and ac- looks out across um ballycastle beach and across um across the water so that's in- incredible That sounds amazing. Now, Andrea, I know you mentioned uh, your husband a couple of times on, on, on our chat today. Yourself and your husband, you have a studio together and it's also, uh, you have a website together. And so it's also somewhere that it's possible for for our audience to go and take a look and, and buy some of the work yeah, that yourself and your husband together. do. Yeah, we work together. We have... Um we we have our website which is under the name of Benefield Spencer Glass and um we make mm-hmm. a range of uh, tablewares um and uh, so Scott um is a glass blower and has been for over 30 years and um he's particularly interested in um Venetian techniques and so he makes um, a range of tablewares that are um very functional and practical, practical, but also very beautiful. Um, so we work together on that and, um, we don't, we're not really open to the public, um, as such. Um, once the COVID is behind us, which hopefully is soon, we'll go back to, we do have a couple mm-hmm. of open studios, maybe a couple of times a year that we advertise where we throw open the doors and the public can come down and, we do demonstrations so people can see um, glass blowing and flame working. And um, we um, sometimes we have stuff available for sale then. But what's been most exciting is we've just uh, launched our new exclusive online range um, at Benefield Spencer Glass Shop. So um, that's, that's the best place to go if you want to um, take a look and see what we do. And um, you can purchase work there. Okay, fantastic. So what we'll do, the, the transcription of today's interview, Andrea, we'll, we'll also put that website there so people can go along and have a look and, and hopefully buy some of uh, That's great. your beautiful Thank products. Thank you very much. Okay. And any other news or anything else that you would well, like our audience to know about? the other thing about? that was um, disappointing um, 
for me with the COVID pandemic, I had to cancel. I had five workshops um, planned, which was something um, that I was just starting to do um, out of my studio. So um, running workshops where people could come and experience mm-hmm. um, melting glass at the torch and um, doing some flame work. And so I'm hoping, you know, next year, um, it, you know, when things we start to learn how we go forward with the, with COVID, that I can re-advertise those again and um, open those up as experiences for people. So um, we will promote that as well through our through our website, so people can keep an eye out for that if they're interested in coming and um, having a go at uh, flame working. Then um, I should have that up and running again soon. Okay, of course. That sounds absolutely amazing. Listen, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Thank you. To join it's been us. an absolute it was a pleasure. pleasure. It's you. great to sort of uh, have the opportunity to look at our environment and see, uh, you know, just take stock of how lucky we are to live in such an amazing location. Um, so it's been good for me too. <laughs> it is. It is. Okay. Well, thank you so much. So don't forget to check out some of the other interviews in this series that include, apart from Andrea today, also uh, authors such as Malachi O'Doherty, Henry MacDonald, and other artists and creators, including Gail Kelly, Helen Sharkey, Emma Thorpe, and Anne Smith. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time, from all of us here, take care.